You're listening to the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. I'm your host, Ryan Notoff, and I interview former Blue Angel pilots and crew for not only this podcast, but for the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel as well. Today, my guest is 1983 and 1984 maintenance officer for the Blue Angels, Doug Hill. Doug's going to share his personal journey to the Blue Angels, which included a stop at a helicopter squadron that was responsible for retrieving the lunar landing module for the Apollo missions. He'd later go on and join one of the original F-14 Tomcat squadrons and be named Maintenance Officer of the Year at the very first Tomcat Ball in the early 80s. Doug would undergo a major personal transformation to be able to even earn his spot on the Blue Angels. Doug's also going to share stories of what it's like to maintain the A-4 Skyhawk, what it's like to fly in the back of Fat Albert, and some stories about some of the memorable people he got to visit with during his tenure on the Blue Angels. So if you like Blue Angels history, if you like the Blue Angels, then make sure you stick around and please join me in welcoming Doug Hill to the podcast. Doug Hill, thank you so much for joining me on the podcast. You were a maintenance officer for the Blue Angels back in 1983 and 1984, and I had the great privilege of meeting you in Pensacola a couple months ago for the Blue Angels homecoming, where I got to meet you and several of your peers. And one of the most exciting parts about my whole trip was just letting, uh, just getting to listen to you guys talk and share your stories. And I heard a couple of your stories, and they were some good ones, so I knew you'd be a good guest for this podcast. So, Doug, thank you so much for spending this Saturday with me. Well, thanks, Brian. I, I really appreciate it. You know, and like we, we say on the team, just really glad to be here. And I am. So enjoy it. Thank you. Uh, so you grew up in Montana. And my first question is, what? how does a kid living in Montana find his way into the Navy? Uh, well, it was a long, long and drawn out process, I guess. I was the oldest of five children. Uh, my mother was a single parent. And... Uh, uh, I was pretty wild as a teenager. I didn't uh, didn't like school. I think I failed every every class there was my freshman and sophomore year in high school, except English. I passed English. Okay, and uh, at the end of the uh, sophomore year, my mother thought it'd be a good idea if I joined the Navy. So we went down to the recruiter. She signed all the paperwork, and uh, uh, they submitted it. However, it came back rejected. The Navy wouldn't take me. Uh, because I had a, a minor juvenile record and I hadn't graduated from high school. So, so be it. I, uh, I went to work for the summer like I, I previously done for the last three years out on a ranch. I uh, used to bale hay for $8 a day in room and board. And uh, that's where I was out mowing hay one day when all of a sudden the Navy recruiter pulled up in a, in a gray Navy station wagon across the stubble field. And he says, uh, Hill, I, I got an appointment set up for you in Butte, Montana in three days to have an interview with a regional uh, recruiting officer. And if that interview goes well, he might recommend that the Navy give you a waiver and induct you. So I quit my job at the ranch, came to town. Uh, my parents, my mother and, and family were out of town. They were actually in Minnesota visiting relatives. I had to break the kitchen window to get into the house. Uh, two days later, I caught a bus. Uh, went to Butte, Montana, had an interview with a Lieutenant J.G. one morning. He told me to come back in the afternoon, and uh, he had teletyped to, uh, I think, Seattle, was the uh, district headquarters. Uh, came back that afternoon. He said they, they granted you the waiver, raised your right hand, and he swore me in. Uh, that evening, I put me on an airplane for uh, uh, Chicago, Illinois, to go to boot camp at the Great Lakes. And that was my first aircraft ride ever. Uh, got to boot camp. Uh, my mother 
I didn't even know I was in the Navy until she got my clothes from boot camp that were mailed back to her. Uh, she'd already signed all the paperwork. So she didn't know where I was for like a week. Uh, boot camp was quite an experience. Uh, when I joined the Navy, I, I didn't even know the Navy had airplanes. I knew they had ships. And I knew I wanted to be a sailor because sailors are always hanging out in the bars, drinking beer and chasing girls, you know, and fighting. And that's exactly what I wanted to do. And uh, come the day to fill out our dream sheet to, uh, you know, tell the petty officer what you want to do in the Navy, what you want to strike for. I had no idea what they were talking about. So this other enlisted friend of mine who came from a military background says, well, you need to tell them what you want to do. And I says, well, I sort of like those uniforms with the red stripes on it. And he says, no, 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 you don't want that. Those are snipes. They work down in the hot engine rooms on a ship. You won't like that. I said, oh, okay. Yeah, I says, I sort of like those green ones those other guys have, those green, you know, stripes on their on their sleeve. He says, well, that's good. He says, that's aviation. He says, that's a good rate. He says, just go in there and tell them you want to be an AT. And I says, what's an AT? He says, that's an aviation electronics technician. I said, well, I don't know anything about electronics. He says, don't worry. They'll send you to school. You know, not a problem. So I went up to see the petty officer, and he looked down at my paperwork, and he says, what do you want to do? Uh, I says, I want to be an AT. And he says, uh, well, you know, he says, you're, you're, you're not smart enough to be an AT. He says, you didn't graduate from high school. Your grades wouldn't allow you to, to be successful there. Uh, and my friend didn't give me another choice, so I didn't know what I wanted to say. So this uh, petty officer says, well, how about if I put you down for AE? And I says, what's that? And he says, well, that's an aviation electrician. I says, well, I don't know nothing about electricity. Says, Once again, don't worry. He says, they'll send you down to school in Jacksonville, Florida, and they'll teach you. And I said, well, wait a minute. Here I am, a kid from Montana. I'm in Great Lakes, Illinois, and it's October. It's winter. And you want to send me to Florida for the summer or for the winter? I says, yes, definitely. Put me down for that one. And that's how they sent me to AEA school in, uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. And uh, that's where I had my first exposure to the Blue Angels. I'd never heard of them before, never seen them before. And uh, they were doing a show in 1965 at NAS Jacksonville. And I had the duty that day. And uh, I was assigned as, uh, as crowd control watch on the flight line in my dress whites. The blues flew the show. I was just totally amazed with those blue airplanes, uh, everything that they did. I took, in, uh, took the show in. Uh, one thing I remember distinctly is uh, the, the, the blue and red smoke, you know, it was a mixture, I guess, dye with... Uh, tin oil, but that, uh, that that smoke oil settled on my dress whites, and I, I looked like a speckled, uh, I don't know what, but I had to throw the whites away. They were so so damaged. But that was my exposure to the Blue Angels. Yep, and they were in the F-11 Tigers back then. Uh, that's that's great. But going back to your, your education, obviously you they doubted your abilities to get through school, and they still put you in a, a aviation electrician school. How'd you do in that? I, I made it. I graduated with my class. But I think I was uh, number 54 out of 56. So I was two from the bottom in A school. I still wasn't, uh, you know, committed to school. I was still enjoying myself out on the beach, uh, chasing the girls and drinking beer and just like I was in Montana. Uh, so I wasn't very good in A school scholastically. But I, I graduated with my class. When I, I got my set of orders uh, leaving A school, I expected to go to Vietnam. Everybody was going there in those days in 1965. And uh, my orders came in and, and I was going to a VR-8 squadron, a transport squadron uh, out of Moffett Field, California, one of your your favorite places yourself, Ryan. Yeah, saw my first air show there. 
Exactly. And uh, I can relate to Moffett Field. I was the big hangars. Uh, I was I was assigned to a VR-8. We had C-130 aircraft. In fact, it was the largest squadron in the Navy at the time. It was a combination of three squadrons, VR-7, VR-21, and VR-8. We had, I think it was 44 C-130s. Uh, the flight line at Moffett was a mile long with C-130s stacked up. Uh, I loved it. I carried a toolbox. I had some great mentors that taught me along the way. Uh, they sent me down to El Toro, Marine Corps Base, to a C-130 Autopilot Compass School. Uh, I, I was a C-130 Autopilot Compass uh, expert, you might say. In fact, that was my primary NEC, my whole enlisted career, because it held a higher priority than just about anything else. Uh, I really enjoyed the C-130s. Uh, and then, you know, in the blues later on, uh, being with Fat Albert, once again, just a, a tremendous affection for that aircraft and what it can do. Uh, I was at uh, Moffett Field for about two years. That's where I met my wife. Uh, still sort of uh, uh, cavalier, I guess you want to say. Not a real studious person. But airplane-wise, as an electrician, I think I really grew a lot. I had a, an old mentor, was an old second-class petty officer who'd been to Vietnam before. He'd been in for like 15 years as a second class, and I carried his toolbox for him. But he told me one day some of the best advice I've ever had in my whole Navy career was that he said, Doug, he says, no matter where you go in the Navy, there's always going to be somebody that's been there longer than you. So if he's been there longer than you, he probably knows that airplane better than you do. So if you want to stand out, if you want to be recognized when you go anywhere new, he says, he says, you don't have to know everything there is about your airplane. He says, but pick out the two hardest things for your job or the two hardest things for your system and learn those two things better than anybody else. And whenever there's a problem, that maintenance chief's always going to call on you to go fix it. And Ryan, that, that's worked for me my entire, not just military, but even civilian career, is you don't have to be an expert at everything, but uh, learn the two hardest things for your job better than anybody else. And then uh, make sure you hire somebody that knows the rest of the things. But uh, I enjoyed VR8. Uh, they ultimately, they, they disbanded us because we were flying uh, Air Force airplanes that belonged to MAC. And Air Force paperwork, Air Force supply system, uh, but they were Navy enlisted maintainers and Navy uh, pilots. Uh, when they disbanded us, uh, we were getting in a block of orders of 1,500 at a time from the Bureau, excuse me, 500 at a time. When my block came in, 300 out of the 500 uh, were going to VO squadrons. And uh, everybody looked at each other because nobody understood what a VO squadron was. And come to find out, it was a uh, converted P2V aircraft that they put a tail gunner in it, painted them black, and they were going to Vietnam to uh, fly the rivers, you know, low level through Vietnam. And in fact, I think they, they probably only lasted about 10 months over there before they were all shot down. So uh, luckily, that isn't where I went. My orders came in to go to uh, VX-5 at China Lake, California, out in the middle of the uh, Mojave Desert. I really en enjoyed that tour. It was, we had a mix of airplanes. We had A4s, F4s, and some of the brand new A7s. So I got experienced working on all three of those aircraft types, of which, you know, the A4 later on in the blues uh, helped me tremendously because I had a real good understanding for what it took to maintain that particular airplane. Uh, I got married uh, out there. My enlistment was coming up to, uh, to end. I was going to be 21 years old. And now I've got a wife and a little baby, and I'm thinking, wow, what am I going to do? Get out of the Navy. You know, what kind of a job am I going to get with a 10th grade education? All my friends were 
re-enlisting. And at the time, the, the, the Navy would guarantee you orders to just about anywhere you wanted to go. And they were volunteering for C-130 uh, flight engineer school. And, and I had an affection for C-130s. Be a flight engineer would be great. Uh, besides the $55 extra flight pay would be tremendous. So me and my wife sat down and we had to make some real uh, tough decisions. And rather than the flight engineer school, we elected to, uh, I knew I had to go back to school and get smarter. So we elected to re-enlist for guaranteed orders to Aviation Electricians B School, which was back in Jacksonville, Florida. And that's where we went. It's the hardest school I've ever been to. It was, uh, I think it was 38 weeks long extremely uh, tough. We were doing, you know, trig functions on a slide rule. And here I am, a 10th grade dropout. So when we uh, graduated from B school, uh, in fact, like I said, my academic uh, capabilities sort of came out, I guess, because we graduated with 14 in my class. And I was the second from the highest in the class. Really turned turned it around, I guess. I, I became no longer a juvenile, but I was a father and husband. I took my uh, first class test about three months after that. And uh, uh, because I, I just come out of B school, uh, I thought that test was a piece of cake. And uh, actually, I made first class the first time I, I took the uh, uh, the test with about four years in the Navy, which was uh, really good, I guess. Getting ready to to leave B school once again, we're all sitting around waiting for our orders to come in. Where are we going to go? And my expectations were definitely I was going to go to a an attack or a fighter squadron aboard a carrier over to Vietnam because uh, that's still going hot and heavy. It was a I think it was December of uh, 68. Uh, my orders came in and, and I opened them up and it said to go to uh, a report to Imperial Beach, California to HS4 and a darn helicopter squadron. Now, here I am and I've got experience in C-130s, A-4s, F-4s, A-7s, and they're going to send me to a helicopter squadron. Uh, I just sort of shook my head. Uh, but we went to Imperial Beach to uh, a helicopter squadron. Uh, they were flying SH-3 Deltas and as it were, HS-4 was actually considered probably the most elite helicopter squadron in the Navy at the time. Uh, we were we were actually the, the squadron that uh, was responsible for the pickup of Apollo 10, 11, 12, and 13. So I had the opportunity to make all four of those Apollo pickups. I got to see the, the capsule fall out of the sky, uh, uh, the first man that walked on the moon, get out of the helicopter and get into the silver trailer. Uh, we used to wave to him down in the hangar deck. So it was a tremendous experience in HS-4. Taught me so much. Uh, that airplane had one of the most complicated systems uh, that I'd ever worked on, uh, the automatic stabilization equipment. It's called, they called it the ASE. It was uh, gyros and accelerometers all integrated together in an amplifier where the helicopter could be flying at, uh, at uh, 150 feet, uh, 60 knots, press a button, and it would automatically take you down to a 40-foot hover at zero airspeed. And it was tremendous. It was the system that I used to, uh, whenever I took my enlisted rating tests in the future, if they'd asked me an inertial navigation question, I always related to the, the factors of the ASC system. And I always did real well with that. Uh, hey, Doug, can I, can I interrupt you sure. there? I, so so you, you got to go pick up, not you personally, but the aircraft you worked on got to go pick up the NASA astronauts that would splash down? Absolutely. Uh, Apollo 10, 11, 12, and 13. In fact, so were you on board the? Was it the Hornet that went and picked them up? The Hornet was Hornet was one. The Ticonderoga was one. The Iwo Jima was one, and I can't remember what the other one. But I don't know if it was the Bennington. Uh, four different carriers. You bet. 
And uh, I was going to say a little side note to that. I, I talked a minute ago about that ASE system, how critical that was. And uh, we used the same helicopter, side number 66, to pick up all the astronauts and all, all four of those Apollos. Yeah, it, there's a replica of that helicopter in the Hornet Museum. So if you're in the Alameda area, I highly recommend you check it out. They have a, a replica of that helicopter because I think Helicopter 66 actually crashed, if I'm not mistaken, later. It's but. actually the original aircraft is on the USS Midway in San Diego. Oh, it's a, the original's on the Midway. Yeah, okay. it, it hasn't been restored yet, but I did have the opportunity a couple of years ago to go through it, which is really interesting. So it's it's really dilapidated. They haven't done anything to restore it yet, but it, uh, I've got lots of fond memories. If I can just relate one to you, we were yeah, fire away. We were getting ready to do Apollo eleven, and we were in Hawaii, which is our first step before we go out into the Indian Ocean for pickup. And that particular aircraft, we had lots of problems with the, the collective coupler system on it, meaning. The pilot, would he would engage ASC, the helo would go down, and rather than just stop at 40 feet, uh, the discrepancy he would write up was put tailwheel in water. So, like, it wouldn't, it wouldn't stop him at 40 feet. The plane just kept going down. And we couldn't figure it. We worked on it for a week, our whole electric shop, and we couldn't figure it out, couldn't figure it out. And we're in Hawaii, and we're getting ready to go out for Apollo 11, and Commander Smiley, the commanding officer of the squadron, comes down to the electric shop one night. He's, he's a little short guy, and... He was really excited. He said, Hill, you got to fix 6-6. You got to fix 6-6. I got to have 6-6. You got to fix that. If you don't fix 6-6, he says, I got to pay 6-6 on another helo. We got to have 6-6. I mean, no kidding. And so we're in Hawaii. So the next day, uh, he gets a test pilot for me. And we're going to go up on a, on, a, on a maintenance flight. And I got an amplifier and a bunch of modules. And I'm trying to troubleshoot this airplane in flight to see if I can duplicate the problem and figure it out. And uh, we shot a couple approaches and into and to a hover, and the same thing, the, the bottom wasn't there. And all of a sudden, I'm kneeling down, and I, and I look back in this, uh, the, the socket of this amplifier and had, a, I don't know, 10 or 12 modules in it. And the sun just shined in there, and I could see a pin. And it, it looked like it was recessed a little bit. So I gently reached in with my needle nose pliers, which you never do, and I grabbed that pin, and I pulled it out. And sure enough, I reset it in the socket. We plugged those amplifiers in, and we shot a perfect approach, working great. And uh, this young lieutenant, the pilot, he was so elated that we fixed the airplane. He said, he says, Hill, he says, have you ever seen the backside of the island? And I says, no. He said, let me take you on a tour. So we opened up the, uh, the door on the side of the plane, and me and this third-class AW, we put on a gunner's belt, and we've got our legs hanging outside the helo, and this pilot's taking us in and out of these coves on the backside where you, you can't get there. There's no cars can get there, and it's just a black lava against a beautiful turquoise water going up on it. And we're going in and out of those coves back and forth. And so when I, when I, when I go back to C66 sitting on the midway, you know, I had to open the door and sit on there and say, you know, I was here 30 years ago or whenever it was, but uh, it was a great experience. Yeah, and so was Neil Armstrong at one point. So you pretty bet. incredible. Yeah. Uh, at the end of my tour in uh, HS4, uh, they were, they were taking applications for initial cadre for the F-14, uh, they wanted to send uh, enlisted people back to the factory uh, with to get factory trained on the F-14. So I filled out the application, sent it in, and it was almost a year and uh, hadn't heard a thing. So I figured, well, I didn't get accepted for that program. And then one night I'm watching television and I see the first uh, first aircraft coming into uh, Long Island that ultimately crashed and the pilot and NFO ejected and the plane crashed and fireballs. And I'm thinking to myself, wow, I guess good thing I didn't go to that airplane. And uh, the next day, 
I got notification that I was accepted to the uh, the F-14 initial uh, cadre. So um, I'm not sure how many sailors actually went. I got I got a feeling there was probably two to three hundred uh, throughout the Navy. But we went to uh, Hicksville, New York, if you can believe that name, to the Grumman factory, and went to I think it was eight weeks uh, of train intensive training on the F-14. Uh, it was extremely uh, new, I guess you want to say, where as electricians, you know, we were taught in school uh, transistors and tube theory. And here now we get in with the F-14 and, and it's all the first truly uh, uh, digital airplane. And they're teaching us a binary number system and AND gates and OR gates and OR gates and, and how to read ones and zeros on a computer chart. And it was, it was like a, a going into a, a different world for us. But uh, I enjoyed it. Uh, once again, I, I relied back on my old Sea Daddy uh, uh, experience, trying what's the two hardest systems on that airplane, because those are the two that I'm going to learn better than anybody else. And the, uh, the auto wing sweep and flaps uh, was what I selected or decided on. And, and ultimately, I was, I was an expert in that. If we were uh, went to a VF-124, the uh, F-14 RAG at the time, and as we were transitioning airplanes from the factory to the uh, to Miramar, they would uh, break down. They had a tremendous water intrusion problem with them. If they flew through water, the, the panels would leak and the computers would burn up. And I was going back to work on airplanes, it seemed like a couple times a month. So uh, I got to be the guy that they called, you know, to go fix it. And in the process of doing that, you meet a lot of people. You the, the ferry pilots were always typically the, the future commanding officers of those F-14 squadrons. So you got to personally meet the new commanding officers of all these squadrons. You got to work for them and fix their airplane. So you built up a rapport with them uh, that, you know, stayed with me once again my whole career with different people that I've known. So I enjoyed 124. We transitioned uh, uh, VF-1 and 2, the first uh, uh, F-14 squatters to deploy. Then my enlistment was up in 124. I went to sea duty with uh, fighter squadron uh, 211, the checkmates, and, uh, and they stood up with their first F-14 cruise. We made a cruise with them uh, on the uh, Constellation. I made chief petty officer on that cruise, come back from the cruise. Uh, ultimately, when I left 211, I went back to the RAG, to back to the VF-124 again. And uh, got selected uh, under the LDO program, the limited duty officer program, to become an ensign, uh, a line ensign. And that's sort of unique, I guess, also is once I got selected as, a, as an officer, uh, typically they would transfer you out of your community. They would send you someplace where people didn't know you as enlisted. And in my case, I had so much F-14 experience. Uh, Commander Ed Pryor, who was uh, one of my sea daddies, again, in VF-124 and, and also on the Admiral staff, says, no, we can't, we can't let you get out of the community. So he called the Bureau and uh, his friends over at uh, ComFIP on the Admiral staff, and they basically, they stashed me uh, at the program manager's office for the F-14 because there was no billets in F-14 squadrons at that time for an LDO. So I worked uh, with the program manager in the F-14 office for 10 months. Uh, great uh, job because it allowed me to be in constant contact with the engineers at the factory. So once again, I got to know the point of contact, who did what, what their responsibilities were, how do you get things done with the factory, with the, the tech reps and so forth. Uh, when VF-51 was commissioned with F-14s, 
I made the transition. I ultimately got a set of orders to the F-51. and it was, I was the first uh, LDO to go into an F-14 squadron. And I, I got to say, alongside the, uh, the Blue Angels, the F-51 was probably the, uh, the best squadron in the Navy. I just absolutely love that squadron, the, the caliber of the people in there. I think normally in a, in a squadron, you might have one or two officers that are screened for command to become future commanding officers of squadrons. And if I'm not mistaken, in, in VF-51, we had nine officers that were selected for future command. And those guys grew up to be captains and admirals and vice admirals and so forth. And once again, they're all your friends. They're your shipmates. They're your brothers. So throughout my career, I've known some really good people in good places that have helped me uh, throughout the years. Uh, it, was, it was a great tour. I, I absolutely love VF-51. At the end of uh, my tour almost there, I was uh, in 1980, uh, I was, they had the, uh, the first Tomcat ball uh, for F-14s in San Diego, and uh, uh, there were probably a thousand people there, and I was in my dress whites, everyone was. Uh, I was selected as the F-14 maintenance officer of the year for the, uh, for the West Coast. I got my, uh, my plaque from Grumman, and I'm very elated, and everybody's coming up and uh, shaking my hand and so forth, and uh, this guy comes up, Al Edmondson, and uh, congratulates me. He's, uh, I didn't know Al up until that night. Came up and congratulated me for the for this, and we start talking. and He mentioned that he was on his way to uh, to the Blues as a maintenance officer, and I just about fell over. I said, "Oh my God!" I says, "That's you know, that's the top of the mountain." I says, "I would, I can't imagine that job." He said, "Well, he says I'll keep you in mind in a couple of years." That's uh, that's sort of where, where we left it. I mean, that was my first introduction to him. Things happened later on, I guess. I, I was I was stationed at uh, at uh, Comfit, commander of uh, the fighter uh, wing, and uh, I got a call one day from Al. Uh, it was two years later, and he says, uh, you know, Dougie says, uh, we're looking for applicants for the mate officer job. Would you consider applying for that position? And I says, man, you know, let me go home and talk it over with my wife and see what she thinks. I mean, that's a tremendous decision. Uh, went home, uh, and basically we decided that, you know, you couldn't afford not to apply, I guess is the way we looked at it, to have that opportunity. So I got the recommendation from my command. I you know, submitted the paperwork and put in my application. That's that's awesome. And Al Edmondson about to turn 80 years old uh, in a couple mu- uh, in a month here. And uh, uh, just a great guy I've had a chance to meet as well. And he I think he's a big fan of the channel, and I had a chance to interview him. And if if anyone that's listening to this isn't aware of Al, I highly recommend you go into Google and, and Google his name and watch his interview because he shares some 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 wisdom there. So how did uh, how did you uh, fare when you rushed the team? We obviously know you made the team, but tell us about rushing the Blue Angels. Yeah, good point. Uh, he called me. Uh, we set up an appointment where they were in winter training, eighty uh, two, and I uh, went over from Miramar to El Centro. Uh, Al took, gave me a tour of the facility, uh, all the work center uh, listed folks, the, uh, the hangers, looked at some airplanes, introduced me to all the aviators and so forth. And uh, then I had a, an appointment with uh, an interview with uh, uh, boss Carroll, Dave Carroll, uh, went into the interview. I was a little nervous, I guess, obviously, but uh, Admiral Carroll, boss Carroll was a real low key, I guess, happy type of individual. It always had a smile on his face. Uh, I thought the interview went well. It took about an hour, I guess. I was very confident. Uh, got up, shook his hand, said, thanks so much, boss. And, and I left the admin building, got in my car. I actually drove out the main gate 
and then something just struck me as, uh, you know, I, I don't feel good about this at all. And I turned my car around and I went back to the admin building and I went back and asked the yeoman, could I see the boss one more time just for a couple of minutes? And I went in his office and he was a little surprised to see me walk back in. And uh, I said, you know, boss, I says, uh, I know the, the blues represent, uh, you know, the, the, the image to, to all of the civilian community of the Navy. And I was overweight. And I told him, I know that my weight, you know, at this at this weight, I wouldn't necessarily present that type of an image. So I'll guarantee you that I'll I'll lose 50 pounds by the time you get to Miramar for the air show. And then I believe that was in August. And he just sort of smiled and, and uh, said, thank you. And I left again. And uh, well, by the time they got to August, I'd actually lost 53 pounds. And I, I think that was honestly, I think that was the deciding factor. Okay. Professionally, I had all the capabilities, but you needed that other, that other image aspect of it. And I think they seen that if I was willing to, to, you know, lose 50 pounds uh, for that position, they knew I wanted it and I had the desire there. So uh, it all worked out in the end. Yeah. And how did you learn you actually made the team? Do you remember that call? Oh yeah. It's a standard call. You know, you get it from actually Edmondson called to begin with, you know, and says, Doug, you know, I'm really sorry, this and that. And then everybody in the background's Welcome aboard, asshole. <laughs> you <know? laughs> yeah, you did. Yep, we've heard that one before. You just about fall over. I'll tell you, it's just, it's. I can't express to you how uh, how it makes you feel. I guess uh, to think that you're going to be, you're actually going to be part of that organization. Okay, uh, yeah, it was a great feeling. So, would you get selected around November of '82? Yes. Yeah. Well, actually, it's probably October, really, because I I was able to go to I think three or four different shows uh, at the end of the '82 season. And how quickly does work actually start for you? It's before 1983 winter training, right? Oh, oh yeah. I mean, you're you're learning. The advantage is, is to go to the end of the 82 and, and, and to make some shows uh, with the old maintenance officer because you get to follow him around, uh, listen to everything that he's teaching you as you go, uh, understand the, the basics of an air show is, is basically what it was. We did have the opportunity to, uh, to go to Hawaii for a two-week trip, which was, you know, enlightening. But... Uh, just to understand uh, the responsibilities of the maintenance officer. And uh, Al is, uh, you know, he's, he's debriefing you, I guess, uh, every, every show site, teaching you something. And uh, there's a real, I'm not sure if they do it today or not, but in my day, uh, in his day, the maintenance officer also critiqued the air show, where he, you know, he takes command of the field, he's at the comm cart, uh, gives the boss uh, wind and, uh, and, and directions, uh, calls through different maneuvers, but he actually learns to look at the maneuvers that the, that the aircrafts are flying and identify uh, faults to it. Who's out of position? Uh, and he teaches you a little a crib uh, sheet, I guess, to take notes. So for every maneuver, the maintenance officer is watching that maneuver and identifying where it's placed on the field. Is there anyone out of position? Who's out of position? Uh, whether they're deep or flat or up the bearing or down the bearing, uh, was the maneuver over center point or, or 400 feet left. And ultimately, you'll go back at the debrief and you will uh, run the video and the, a maneuver at a time. And the maintenance officer would, uh, would identify, you know, who's out of position. And the, the pilots, uh, they would never take criticism from another aviator. There's no doubt. I mean, they, because their ego was very high. They're the best at what they do. But they do take criticism from a ground officer who doesn't know how to fly. I'm not telling them how they got in that position. I'm just telling them what it looks like from the ground so that he can fix it next time. And that's the premise that, uh, uh, that we worked on. I, I really, I thought that was an extremely important part of my job 
as a maintenance officer, not just fixing airplanes and making sure they're maintained, but that other half of it, that that safety on the ground, that that watching uh, the air crew, the giving them my input to every day strive to get better, and that's uh, one of the sayings goes, you know, striving for perfection. You never quite get there. You're always striving to uh, to get better. Well, that that learning process starts all the way in that fall of '82, uh, where where I'm learning that from Edmondson. He's teaching me what to look for, and then how how to communicate that during the briefs or debriefs. So. Yeah. And I bet when that gray van pulled up in the field many, many years earlier, you didn't know that you were going to be giving feedback to Blue Angels on how they could fly their demo better. So (laughs) quite incredible to think about in that context. Well, now remember, Uh, I didn't tell them how to fly it. I just told them what it looked like. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's still something. So, Uh, so you head out to El Centro winter training, you know, it's your, you have a boss in a second year. So that's probably pretty helpful, but I mean, it, you know, today, for example, now there's a YouTube channel. This guy named Mike Whitman goes out to El Centro every day and he films the Blue Angels and they fly two, three times a day uh, as opposed to a regular air show weekend where they fly, you know, a demo a day. So twice the volume of flying, you're brand new to your role. It must be drinking from a fire hose going out to El Centro as a first year maintenance officer. Well, I think, you you know, what I did was uh, I've always prided myself uh, on being a good officer because I was, uh, I never forgot what got you there. What did you do when you were enlisted? What was it like to carry a toolbox? Uh, make sure that you always have respect for the enlisted people because you understand how hard they work and what they're thinking. So my style of leadership has always been in that direction. So when we got out to uh, out to El Centro, you know, uh, to begin with, uh, I wanted to make sure that I wanted to foster a, a total team environment. Okay, the enlisted people are are the absolute best there is. You know, they're, they're world-class. They're all hand-selected. They're the best at their jobs. So it isn't like trying to, you know, teach them how to do things, okay? Everyone's super. The actual uh, maintenance tasks themselves, they almost take care of themselves as far as fixing the airplanes. The biggest challenge, I thought, was uh, ensuring that everybody was going in the same direction where you could say something and 10 different people would go out in 10 different directions, and each one of them would accomplish the task. But trying to get them all to go in the same direction and accomplish the task together, that's the difference. That's what I tried to always achieve. My goal was to communicate, okay, in a manner that uh, everybody's going the same direction. And uh, I've heard you, I know you've heard the saying, just like we said, uh, glad to be here, boss, right? I'm not sure, are you aware that there's a second half to that goes along with that saying? It's uh, glad to be here, boss, I'll fix it. The only acceptable answer is I'll fix it. It doesn't matter what the problem is or what the issue is, I'll fix it. And that's what we're always striving for perfection at all times, okay? Uh, winter training, I thought, was a, it was a learning process. Uh, it was learning from the, from the chief petty officers and senior petty officers. I was real fortunate where my, my senior maintenance chief was a gentleman by the name of Rene Cretura. We called him Frenchie. And in fact, he and I were first-class petty officers together. Uh, so I knew him very well uh, before the Blues. Uh, we both had an interest in cars. He used to rebuild Volkswagen sand buggies, and I rebuilt Mustang convertibles. And we had a, an understanding of each other and a friendship there. Uh, I wanted to understand how the work centers were organized. You know, what was the training process for the new enlisteds? You know, and I think primarily I was looking at how can I uh, build a rapport, okay, a personal type of rapport uh, with the enlisted team. 
And uh, I'll give you an example, I guess, of, of one thing. Uh, everybody knew because Frenchie was the master of the senior chief that, uh, that I, I took a lot of pride in, uh, in painting cars because I used to restore my own cars and I'd learned and taught myself how to paint and so forth. So he came into me and, and, and that fed down to the enlisted guys. They, under, they knew that, I guess, as, as one of my traits. And uh, Frenchie came down to me one day and says, hey, Mo, he says, we're getting ready to, to paint the drop tanks out here in the hangar. And the guys would like to, you know, see you paint. And I said, oh, okay, no problem. And I go out in the hangar deck and put on a mask. And uh, they already had the blue paint mixed up. And I'm shooting this drop tank. And uh, there must have been 10 or 15 guys standing around, you know, watching. And I shot it. And, oh, man, it, it was just absolutely beautiful. The glossiest gloss you'd ever want to see. And, you know, I took off my mask and I stepped back a minute, you know, and I'm sort of taking pride in it. And all of a sudden that blue paint started to run <laughs> through the, the whole tank. It just ran like a sieve down the side. And they, these eight or 12 guys that are standing there just cracked up laughing, you know, and uh, I never lived it down. Okay. But I think that one little incident uh, just showed that I was human. Okay. And they respected that. And uh, I don't know, it's hard to explain, I guess, but uh, building that rapport with the enlisted guys, I think is, is really important. You had to show the, the human side of yourself. You had to show that you're humble. I go back and, and I remember some of the best advice I ever got from Al Edmondson, uh, where he said, uh, he said, you're going to see things. Uh, you're going to see things that are done and you're going to, you're going to question, you know, why well, I could do that a different way. I could do this and maybe it'd be better. And he says, You'll see things like that, but, but before you actually go change a process, he says, make sure you really understood what put that process in place. Because, I mean, somebody could have died, uh, and, and that process was the fix that created that, or somebody could have been injured, or, or something could have been alleviated because of that. And I always remembered that before I ever made any, any major type of decisions to change something within the team. The Blue Angels is a process. Uh, whether it's maintenance or whether it's flying in an air show, it's it's doing something the same way every single time, never deviating from that process. That's your safety factor. So I always kept that advice, Mal, uh, in the back of my mind. I think uh, the other person I have to give a lot of credit for in, in winter training my first year was our McDonnell Douglas technical representative, Dale Speck. Uh, he's no longer with us. He was He was like the the godfather almost of the Blue Angels. He'd, he'd been on the team for 10 years, traveled to every air show for 10 years. It just, he was the historian. He, he knew aviators. He understood aviator psychology. He understand, understood when an aviator was going to have problems uh, learning something in winter training. He knew how to talk to people to uh, boost their morale. And he knew the A4 airplane backwards and forward. He was definitely a mentor for me and, and taught me a lot. So, And speaking of the A-4, you obviously worked on a lot of aircraft, including helicopters in your day prior to the, the Blues. How hard or how easy was it to maintain the A-4 Skyhawk? Well, I, I'd like to say it was terrible and we worked our butts off and so forth, but actually I thought the A-4 was really an easy airplane to maintain. I mean, it was an older older uh, aircraft. Uh, parts and supply was not an issue. You know, we... We had the, the parts that we needed. I had come from the F-14 community where, you know, the guy who has the most parts wins. But the A-4 I thought was easy. Uh, I had a background as an electrician working on it, so I understood the basic airplane. Not to say that I could do it like the, the enlisted guys that were there, but I, I could talk the same language, I guess, okay? 
So, and, and the men and women that, that were in the blues are just, are just, I don't know, they don't get any better. They're the absolute best at what they do. And, and it's such a team environment where if you're going to, you know, pull an engine or split a tail or do something, it's all hands. It's everybody doing it. And it's not one of these where you're looking, looking for help. Uh, it's, you don't have to say anything. It's just there. So I thought the A4 basically was an easy airplane to maintain. And, and wax, I mean, unfortunately, like cleaning and waxing the airplane is a big part of the Blue Angels, how the, the jets present themselves. How long does it take to wax an A4 Skyhawk? Uh, well, a long time, especially, especially initially. But uh, the key there is, uh, you know, you couldn't walk on the airplane with your shoes on. Uh, you, had to, you had to have uh, uh, socks only. If you, on an A4, if you took an, uh, uh, the leading edge slats are, are stainless steel and they're bolted up, but they're polished just like chrome. If, uh, if you put your hand on that stainless steel, it costs you a case of beer. Okay. So everybody uh, treated that airplane, you know, with respect. Okay. And, and everybody took a lot of pride in what they looked like. There's absolutely no doubt about that. And how often do do the maintainers actually have to wax the aircraft? Is it once a day or just before flight? No, I think it, in my time, I think it was a, a continuous process, okay, where, where the airplane's done and then the crew chief is responsible for identifying when it needs to be, you know, touched up. If he needed help, he'd go see the, the senior chief and would get other people assigned to give him a hand. So I don't think there's a specific uh, amount, I guess. A lot would have to do, too, with the... Uh, you do air shows and uh, and flying back to Pensacola. If uh, you know if you flew through a thunderstorm or through rain, uh, we had fiberglass radomes, and the rain would just take a beating on that on the leading edges and then that, that radome. So there was always touch up going on to on the struts, okay, and on the uh, fiberglass radomes to uh, to get them back into shape. So you're always touching up the paint, applying more wax, uh, so forth, to keep the cosmetics where it needed to be. And as you know, I myself am a layman when it comes to the technical aspects of an airplane. But the one thing I always enjoyed about the Skyhawk, just because it gave it that unique look, was that external fuel probe. Did that guy? Did that ever give you any issues uh, or challenges? Just having this other extra external piece on the airplane, or, or not really? No, not not at all. And and obviously we used that a lot because uh, we went to uh, Bermuda and uh, Hawaii and so forth, and we all we had to use uh, you know in flight refueling. Uh, in both of those cases, so uh, no, not an issue whatsoever. Whatsoever. So, and we took the, you know, the the, the gun was removed, and uh, and that's where we stored the uh, the boarding ladder, if I remember right. We had a a boarding ladder that collapsed, and we'd fold it up and stick it down the gun tube. <laughs> Incredible, um, Fat Albert. You mentioned it earlier. Uh, I've always wondered: Does Fat Albert have its own crew for maintenance, or is that something that your team was responsible for maintaining as well? I think it's a. The Marines definitely take take over the, the, the key maintenance uh, requirements on, on the C-130. Uh, I think it still belongs to the maintenance officer, but, but that's sort of a fine line that we drew with the, with the air crew, uh, the Marine Corps air crew. Uh, they are so good. And, and those uh, enlisted guys that are recruited into the for, for Fat Albert are, are key experts in their area. Uh, you know, if they needed to change an engine or a prop, obviously there's assistance from, from the, from the, you know, the Navy side of the house, but, uh, we all recognized that, uh, you know, they they understood that airplane and, and that was their baby. Great. And I mean, Fat Albert, to my knowledge, is how the maintenance crew gets from show site to show site. Uh, is that true? And how comfortable or uncomfortable is the ride in the back of Fat Albert? Oh, wow. In, in my days, <laughs> we had uh, three road boxes, we called, which were portable trailers. 
uh, where each work center was assigned so many drawers on both sides where they kept their spare parts, their tools, their so forth, that they were going to need to maintain uh, uh, the aircraft on the road. And when you put those three road boxes in, there were no seats available on the starboard side of the airplane, okay, because of the size of the road box. So all of the seats were canvas seats on the on the port side, on the left side. If you sat down on that canvas seat, literally your knees would almost hit the road box. You could not walk from the front of the, the, the Fat Albert to the back of the airplane because there was no place to walk. If you wanted to go from, you know, to the bathroom out in the back, you had to climb over people in their canvas seats to get there. And when you get back to the, uh, the uh, back of the airplane, we had huffers, three huffers that we carried that we uh, chained to the ramp. And when the ramp came up, those three huffers were, were sitting in the back. So and, there and was huffers. Huffers are what start the A4 Skyhawk engine. Is exactly. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And uh, in those days, that's what we had to use. So, and then you've got, uh, you know, your, your portable comm cart is there. You have uh, uh, portable compressors, portable generators. Uh, I was very fortunate as a maintenance officer. My permanent seat was on the port side, half wheel well, where the wheel well uh, had a little bit of a, about a foot and a half indentation, extra room, and I could put a, a pillow up there to rest my head, and I, my feet would go on the compressor that was stationed in front of me. So, so, uh, so rank gets you a good spot on Fat Albert. It does. It does on my airplane. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, awesome. it was it, it was great. So uh, I'm assuming the the flights out to Hawaii and uh, those remote places were not very fun then. Well, they, they were okay. We actually had to get another C-130 uh, where we had to, to take two because of the weight uh, restrictions and so forth. But uh, no, it was a piece of cake flying. And I, I really enjoyed just the flying across the normal cross countries because uh, as I sat back there in the 130, you had a headset on and you're listening to all the radio communication. And as you uh, get to a particular uh, a field or over a field, I guess, where where they would check in uh, from one station to the next. Uh, you could almost get to know the air traffic controllers by their voice as you check in and, and as you check out. And they wish you luck and, you know, uh, as, as you check out. And it got to be very normal, I guess, to sit there with that headset on for, for three or four hours and just uh, sort of doze off, but yet listening to the, all the ground tra- or all the traffic going on in flight. So. With Bert, uh, once again, I love the C-130, and, and I'd worked on it for, for a couple of years. But flying into Pensacola, you know, on a Sunday night late in the thunderstorms in, in, in northern Florida, we flew through some thunderstorms that were, I mean, good thing everything was chained down. That's all I can say inside the aircraft. But that Bert, it never fails, man. It had a great Doppler radar system. It took us everywhere we needed to go. Uh, I never had a doubt. We never had an issue with it. And uh, we, even, we even flew into a small fields uh, for a, on a demonstration weekend where uh, we're in bad weather. The A4s didn't have a radar. So if they didn't have good, you know, visual, uh, they were in trouble. So literally they would tuck six airplanes behind Fat Albert and he'd shoot an approach to a, to a runway and then pull off at 100 feet and the, and the blue jets would land right behind him. So we did that more than once. So it was a tremendous airplane. Interesting. Uh, one last Fat Albert question for you. I love the movie Threshold, and there's a great refueling scene in there where they're flying out to Hawaii, and it looks like Fat Albert, the very first version of Fat Albert, does the refueling. In your day, did Fat Albert ever function as a refueling craft for the Blue Angels, or did they always use a separate uh, uh, fuel jet to do that? Yeah. No, it was never used as a fueling aircraft. You know, I don't think it was ever, ever, let alone on my team. I can't imagine 
uh, where it would be. Great information. Thanks. So, you know, 1983 is your first season. Any air shows that stick out in your memory that were extraordinary or, you know, anything unique happened that you could share with us? Well, I, and, uh, I'll tell you what, 83 and 84 sort of run together for me. Okay. Yeah, sure. Well, yeah, hey, let yeah. them rip. Yeah, I can't differentiate one year from the next. It just seemed like it went by in a whiz. It was it was so fast. But uh, uh, I've had you know some some real experiences, I guess, that I thought were were uh, I remember today that uh, you know uh, I'm just thinking to myself here a second. I can remember uh, at one air show. Uh, you know, typically everything goes goes smooth at an air show. Typically. Uh, uh, it's it's repetition. It's doing the same thing every day. Once again, like I said before, uh, that's your safety factor, I guess. And uh, but we had an indication or an, uh, an uh, item one day where uh, we had a particular one of the straight jets uh, had a fuel control problem uh, where the engine wouldn't start unless the engine was warmed up, was warm. Uh, you could shut it down and 30 minutes later it start up again. But if you let it go for an hour, it wouldn't start. So. We, did, we couldn't go get a spare. We we're too far away. Uh, so what we did with that airplane is we pulled it uh, behind the crowd, you know, behind the, uh, the hangars where no one could see it. And uh, we had an enlisted guy went out there every 30 minutes throughout the night to start the jet up, warm it up, shut it down, and start it up again 30 minutes later. And the next uh, day, we got ready for the air show, and we had five jets parked out in the front. And uh, 15 minutes before a walk down, uh, we towed the sixth jet out. It was nice and warm. Put them in spot. 15 minutes later, uh, the pilots uh, walked down, got in, fired the jet up, started just fine, had no problems. So that's, uh, you know, the process, again, I guess, is doing what you need to do to be successful. Do you remember San Francisco, 1983? The Blue Angels hadn't been there in a couple years, and they got a permit uh, to do some lower flying around the city. And when they showed up, it scared the hell out of everyone. Oh, absolutely. In fact, uh, you know, San Francisco is a great place to do an air show because it's over the water show. And uh, you're standing there and you're, you're looking out over the water and, and the Golden Gate Bridge is on the left-hand side. Alcatraz is out sort of to your right. And the, the city is right behind you downtown. And uh, the way I understood it was uh, we typically we practice on a Friday and then fly an air show on Saturday and Sunday. Well, uh, the way I understood it is nobody told uh, Mayor Diane Feinstein that we practiced on a Friday. So here's all these office buildings with people in them working on a normal Friday. And all of a sudden, here comes these blue jets, you know, flying between the buildings downtown San Francisco. And she went crazy. She almost shut us down. Uh, I guess ultimately somebody appeased her and she let us go ahead and finish the show on Saturday and Sunday. Uh, but that's the way I understood it is that, that she didn't ever got communicated that we were going to practice on a Friday. So, but we made it up for her because the next year we went back to uh, San Francisco. We gave her a ride in the back seat. So I think I think she's a friend of ours now. Yeah. Did you ever get a ride in the back seat during your time? Oh, uh, many. I, actually, my first actual ride uh, in the back seat was uh, uh, Scott Anderson uh, was a narrator when I got there in '82, uh, uh, and he took me up for my first ride in, in an A4, and it was actually the first ride in a tactical jet. I'd never flown in a tactical jet before. It was, I was nervous. Uh, you know, I was sweating like a, a hog, I guess. But it was the, uh, I can't describe it. I didn't get sick. I just absolutely, I understood then, Ryan, why aviators always want to fly. As a, as a maintenance person, you know, the pilots always want to fly. That's, give me a hop. Give me a test hop. Let me get on the flight schedule. I understand now why they wanted to do that. It was just, it was tremendous. And in the course of my, my two years on the team, 
Uh, I got to fly in, uh, I think, three practice demonstrations where I actually got in the slot, uh, which I, I couldn't believe because uh, when you're sitting in that four jet and two and three come up, I swear if you could open the cockpit, you could, you could put a hand on the, the wing tip, tip of each one of those airplanes. That's what it seems like. And uh, my first... Uh, my first year, I, I think I want to say I changed eight wingtips my first year uh, because of tapping. And, you know, the first 18 inches or so in a light bulb uh, is all that's on a wingtip. But uh, they really do get close, and they're moving all the time. Uh, it was phenomenal. And then later on, Mike Gershon was the uh, narrator, and we would fly twice a day, and he'd be out in the desert with us practicing his narration in El Centro. And uh, we'd come back in for the second debrief and all the aviators, it's, it's not even 12 o'clock yet and their flying day is done. They're going back to the hotel to uh, do their business and, or lay around the pool or whatever it happens to be. And, and here's poor Mike, you know, he's been out in the desert. So he wants to go fly. So he would put me in the back seat and, and the tee. And I probably have, I probably have 20 hours in the back seat with him that uh, I just love because now you're just cruising around the Imperial Valley. He's showing you around. And I never forget this one instance. He said, uh, he said, Dee, he says, I'm going to, I'm going to show you how to do a split S reversal. And I said, uh, oh, okay. Being an electrician, I can, I can watch the instruments. And I understand what the instruments and gyros and accelerometers do and, and how to read them. But I have absolutely no idea what's happening outside of the cockpit. I have no perception for the air outside of, outside of the cockpit. So, but, uh, so he's, he's going to make this run. I see the, the sticks coming back. The throttle's going more power. Uh, the gyro is rolling up. We go over the top and over the backside, and then he rolls wings level and down the backside. I said, man, that's really cool. He says, you want to try it? I said, sure. So then I'm thinking to myself, okay, what did he do? Well, he pulled the stick back, gave some more power, and away we go. And that's what I did. And I get almost inverted up at the top, and <laughs> and I stalled the airplane. <laughs> And it, it's starting to fall straight down, and he comes over the radio. I got it, Mo. I got it, Mo. I got it, Mo. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that was my experience flying. With so, but uh, yeah, when we lost Mike, I think a year after I left the team too. But what a great guy! We had some great times together. So, talk to me about the extent that crew chiefs go to uh, to accommodate their pilots. I've I've heard. Uh, I've talked to Jim Ross, for example, and he said there wouldn't even be a speck of dust in his cockpit because his crew chief knew essentially that that may bother him while in flight. And uh, he said he just never had to worry about it. What what lengths do the crew chiefs go? Oh, I think that's that's an absolutely true. And uh, each each crew chief, because he's so acclimated to his pilot that he understands his wants and wishes and what he needs to do. Scott Anderson, whenever he went flying, and you can ask him about this, uh, his crew chief had to put a a stick of big red bubble gum on his glare shield because he liked to chew big red bubble gum <laughs> when he was flying. So uh, a very unique, uh, I haven't thought about that in years either, but you ask him next time you see Scott Anderson. Uh, another example was uh, that I remember was, uh, I can't remember, it was a small show in uh, you know some small town in Wisconsin or something, but we did arrival maneuvers and uh, the air crew all land and they're around the water wagging and wagon and are filling out their flight books and the maintenance guys, the crew chiefs are standing there and uh, to see what kind of gripes they're going to write up, if anything. And, and one of the solo pilots, I don't remember which one, said, wow, he's looking at his picture because, he, you know, he got a picture of the field where they mark all of their checkpoints and so forth that they have to make. And he's looking at his picture and he says, you know, he says, I need to mark my map or my picture because there's a great big tree about a mile and a half down my, my flight line. He says, I need to really be aware of where that tree is. And uh, we didn't think much about it. 
And uh, the next day we came out uh, for practice on a, on a Friday and uh, uh, maintenance chief says, Mo, he says, I got a problem. And I said, what's going on? And he says, well, he says, I, I think we got a really big problem. And he says, take a look. And we looked down the runway and that tree's not there anymore. And, you know, we called the crew chief uh, for the airplane that, that uh, griped it the night before. And we asked him about it. I said, you know anything about this tree? The chief's asking him. And he says, well, yeah, he says that. He says, after we left the field last night, I went down there and went to this farmer's house where the tree was. And I knocked on the door. The farmer came to the door. And I told him, I said, you know, I'm with the Navy Blue Angels. And we're getting ready to do an air show this weekend. And he says, that tree in your backyard is right in my pilot's flight path. And the farmer said, well, you know, he says, I've been meaning to cut that tree down for years. So he says, I helped him. He went and got chainsaw. And we went in the back and we cut that tree down. <laughs> but it just shows you the initiative, the self-initiative, I guess. Uh, of the enlisted men in the Blue Angels. I love that story. Yeah, you told me that one in the hotel lobby, and that was one that definitely stuck with me. Uh, earlier, when I first started this Blue Angel Phantoms project, uh, one of the people I had the great privilege of interviewing was your boss, Dave Carroll. Talk to me about Dave Carroll, what it was like to work with him, and then also then transitioning to a new boss, uh, and I believe Boss Haas Pearson. Okay, yeah, yeah Dave Carroll was a, obviously he was my first year boss, and he's the guy I interviewed originally. But uh, to me, Dave Carroll was the epitome of a polished naval officer. He, he was low-key, never raised his voice. He was uh, obviously a great stick, you know, pilot. Otherwise, he wouldn't be there. And I just seem to remember that he always had a smile on his face. He was just a pleasant human being, a good pilot. Uh, if you could, you could give him criticism, he would take it uh, with, with no feedback. And uh, uh, he, was, he was a great leader, just a nice guy. Hoss Pearson. Again, he was a great stick. My take on Hoss Pearson when was he was more of a, what do I want to say? He was more of a down-home, kick-the-tires type of an officer. And he was, a, obviously, his call sign was Hoss. He was a, not a cowboy, but a, I don't know. It's hard to say. I'm not saying anything negative about him at all. Just a different personality. He was the, you know, the fighter pilot you throw in an airplane and shoot him off the end and he goes to war type. Uh, he, the other thing is about Hoss Pearson, he was an avid golfer. Every demo site we went to, he wanted to know, okay, what's the nearest golf course? What time's my tee time? Uh, you know, do they allow carts? And I would typically go along at numerous times just to drive his cart for him because I didn't, I didn't play golf, but I drank beer. So he would play golf and I would drive the cart for him. Nice guy. He introduced us to some, uh, some nice people. Some, uh, he, one of his best friends was, uh, uh, an astronaut and, uh, Flew the Challenger, actually, before it exploded. And uh, he'd come to, invited him to winter training. He spent like uh, three days, four days with us out winter training. It was, uh, you know, and then he went up and, and flew the uh, the Challenger. In fact, I used to give him a hard time when he was, came out to El Centro to visit us. And uh, I told him, I says, you know, I says, when you go up there in space, I says, I want one of those pictures of all you floating around. No problem, Mo, no problem. Well, after he flew the Challenger, about two weeks later, I Come back to my mail on a Sunday night. Here's a manila envelope from NASA. And I open it up. And here's an 8 by 10 picture of uh, Captain John, John McBride autographed. Thank you, Dee Dee, for Mo, for all your support and so forth in El Centro. And here's another uh, 5 by 7 picture of all the astronauts that threw the Challenger with him. Uh, 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 John, John Cripplin, uh, Sally Ride, uh, autographed by each one of those astronauts. And a Challenger patch. And in fact, I, I have it framed uh, hanging on my wall as to this day. 
but he was a good friend of, of Haas Pearson's. And then uh, later on, uh, Haas Pearson went to uh, the commanding officer of, uh, of NAS Miramar. Uh, and after I left the team, I went back to VF-124 at Miramar. So he was, we were both stationed at Miramar. We see each other quite often there. So nice guys, both of them excellent, excellent officers. Yeah, that's great. So you got to meet the astronaut. I'm sure you got to meet some other pretty amazing people, uh, given your role in the Blue Angels. Who, who are some other people, uh, either celebrity or civilian, that stick out uh, that you got to meet that left an impact on you? The most memorable was uh, uh, George H.W. Bush Sr. when he was vice president. We were at uh, Seafair in Seattle. We were at Boeing Field, and uh, he was there at the same time. And they arranged for, for him to come out. There. We were all uh, in formation, uh, all the officers. And uh, he came up and shook each one of our hands. Uh, we all have pictures of him shaking hands. And uh, just a really nice guy. And he was real casual that day. One of the things I remember distinctly was, uh, and it's funny how I, I remember this, but I thought he, he, he did have penny loafers on, you know, like boat shoes, the kind that you would put a penny in the front of. And, and I could swear, Ryan, that he didn't have any socks on, okay? <laughs> and it just, it just impressed the dickens out of me, you know? To this day, I think about it, and I have the picture hanging on my wall also, but I can't quite see his socks in the picture, so I don't know for sure. But uh, nice guy. <laughs> And uh, probably uh, to go along with him uh, uh, was uh, probably Ernest Borgnine. Uh, he was an honorary Blue. You know that, right? And I sure do. In he, fact, he mentions the Blue Angels in his biography. Okay. He would show up six or seven times a year at different air shows. Come to the brief, come to the debrief, sit next to you. Just the nicest guy in the world. And uh, in uh, 82, the fall of 82, when, I, when Al was still there, we were getting ready to go to Hawaii. He was shooting a, a TV series, Magnum PI, in Hawaii with Tom Selleck. We did the I think we did the El Toro show first in in California, and then we were going to fly to Hawaii. And Ernest Morgan had his wife take us out to dinner. Uh, came and picked us up at the hotel in limousines. Took us to a really really fancy Italian restaurant. I mean, the guys have got tuxedos that open your door for you. You know, really fancy. And then when we got over to Hawaii, he introduced us to uh, Tom Selleck. And uh, Tom came out and we gave him a ride in the jet. Just the nicest guy in the world. Uh, he invited us over to his uh, uh, where they were shooting uh, his series and uh, the next day. And we'd sit on the sidelines, you know, drinking a Coke. And he'd go shoot his scene. And, and they'd cut. And he'd come over and sit down with you for 10 or 15 minutes. And he took us out and showed us they had two uh, red Ferraris that they used in the series. And, one of them was pristine, uh, just polished, beautiful. And he says, yeah, that's the one we use for the close-up. And then there's other ones for the road scenes. And it was beat all the dickens, you know. <laughs> so, But uh, to this day, just a really nice guy. Uh, I enjoyed meeting him. Uh, another might, that I really enjoyed was uh, uh, John Denver. We were at, I don't know, I think it was Appleton, Wisconsin, maybe. But uh, we gave him a ride in the, in the jet. And he, his, he came from a military family. His dad, I think, was retired Air Force. And he was an aviator. He invited us to his concert that night. And we went to the concert. And then after the concert, we went back to his dressing room. And he sent his road manager out. And he came back with three cases of Budweiser beer. And we sat there and, and drank beer and just talked airplanes all night long. And, uh, you know, he's one of these guys, oh, yeah, man, you get to Denver. Come on over to the house and we'll do this and that. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, right. Doug Hill's going to go knock on your door in Denver, <laughs> you know, but, uh, and then ultimately, you know, he, he got killed in an, in an airplane. So 
but uh, yeah, just a really nice guy, nice genuine guy. Yeah, I I don't want to keep you too long. Do you have any other memories that you want to share, or how or do you want to wrap it up? No, I think we can wrap it up. But I would like to say, just uh, you know, I, I'm extremely fortunate for, for where I came from and where I ended up. But you, your success in the Blue Angels is driven, I think, totally from the enlisted character within that team. They are absolutely the the world's best. And uh, you, you, you just you can't describe it. Okay, I'm so proud to have been able to serve with them, and uh, and uh, I really wish the current team all the best in the world. Uh, and, and for all the exes out there, uh, enlisted and officer, uh, I, I welcome you as a brother, and I thank you for all your support through through my tour. All right, so that wraps up this second episode of the Blue Angel Phantoms podcast. Special thanks to Doug Hill for taking time out of his day to join us here and have a conversation. So if you like these conversations with former Blue Angel pilots and crew, make sure you subscribe to this podcast and also subscribe to the Blue Angel Phantoms YouTube channel. So until next time, thank you very much, and I will see you soon.